Welcome. I'm trauma therapist and neuroscience consultant, Shauna Hill, and you're listening to the State Change Podcast. So although they did say I didn't have long to live, I thanked them for sharing and said you I didn't can have, have much to go yet. on at that point in my life, but I know that I knew that's my mom that is an otherworldly type figure. She had one foot in this reality and one foot somewhere else. You've been and waiting for this I'm senior year, all your like high school life, and suddenly now you're like being I don't in even public service and being a politician. I have less privacy than I when my mom started working from home. I saw her a lot more. She was in meetings all day, so it was like she wasn't there. But but when we bring everyone to the table, it's beautiful and it builds the social cohesion that is rapidly eroding in so many parts of the world. We talk with folks who faced some of life's most harrowing left turns and found their way through the fires of incredible trauma, pain, and adversity to a better state of things. Thanks for joining us. I first met Vermont State Senator Rebecca White in 2017 when I was living and working in a small town on the Vermont-New Hampshire border. She was a 22-year-old recent college graduate who sat on the town council, and I had reached out to her about a school bond issue that I cared about as the clinical director of a behavioral alternative school in the district that urgently needed funding investments. And she immediately responded and invited me to talk about the issue over coffee. I was stunned that she made that offer to make that kind of time and space for me. And when I took her up on it, I was moved by her deep compassion and wholehearted investment in serving her community that felt refreshingly authentic and important. She won me over immediately as a constituent. And even though I moved away a few years later, I continued to follow her work through her term as a state representative and her Senate campaign, which she won in 2022. I trusted Rebecca to be a dedicated and effective young adult leader, and she deepened that trust with me several years ago during the first year of the COVID pandemic when she announced on social media to the public that she'd been struggling significantly with alcohol abuse that had come to a head during the lockdowns and was now actively working a 12-step program and had stopped drinking. I knew what a courageous, radical act Becca was committing by sharing her experience with substance abuse as an elected official and a younger female leader who was held up by others as a role model and holder of the public trust. I knew that while many public figures struggle with mental health and substance use issues, almost none ever disclose this to their voters and to the public because of the risk of being considered ineffective or having their lives and struggles openly discussed and evaluated by others. I reached out to invite her to tell us her state change story, and she immediately said yes, absolutely and arrived for our conversation focused and ready to engage, as always, in a wholehearted, vulnerable way in the service of her own healing and in the service of turning her experience into something that can heal and help others. My story starts long before the catalyst of when I changed, but for me, uh, the pandemic in particular had an impact on how I thought about my relationship to alcohol, which is really my uh, main substance that I've been working through. You know, I grew up in my district in Hartford, Vermont, in the village of Wilder. My family has uh, long had a history of Uh, substance-related disorders. When I was uh, in my teen years, I really did struggle with anxiety, depression, pretty classic things. And as I got into college, um, even though I was very successful in college and in high school and I was doing well grades-wise and being successful on the debate team, which is uh, one of my strengths, I think, in college was being on the uh, Lawrence Debate Union, 
at the same time, I was feeling not great about myself. And I was also leaning heavily into drinking culture and using alcohol in particular to kind of either shut off my brain or make me invincible and make me like the life of the party. So I had long had experiences where I was abusing alcohol um, both in like a social setting where it just would go off the rail and I would become a person I didn't like and also independently like alone just drinking way more than I had wanted to. And I don't think it ever dawned on me that it was something that other people didn't also struggle with. Like it felt like it was a, at least in college, like it was everybody's situation. Yeah. You know, let's stop there for just one moment because you said something I think that's really important about young adult mental health in general. And I'm a practicing clinician and I've specialized for over 20 years in youth and young adult mental health. And It has changed and it is worsening, Mm. but it has always included folks going out into the world on their own for the first time, often without maybe an understanding or any words for things like anxiety or depression or perfectionism, (laughs) Uh, you know, and, and those first years in college, regardless almost of how they go or those first years in the workforce, Mm. those first years out in the military, those first years when you are now an adult doing your own thing are a big crash course in uh, struggle for a lot of folks, right? And so I wanted to name specifically that you're saying, okay, in hindsight, when I look back, I can see like that was a rough time. But it's hard to know that what I was experiencing might have been any different or or even concerning Yes, because it's sort of in the air in college that, first of all, we just act like we've got it together. And that we don't have language or understanding yet. We're young, right? Yeah. We're young. And as a, from, you know, overachiever Hermione Granger type to <laughs> yes. overachiever Hermione Granger type, I was also a debate champion, <laughs> yes. right? I'm off at Middlebury College. I know that world well of I'm moving through. It doesn't feel good, but I don't have any clear sense that I'm in trouble per yes. se. It just feels yes. like if I keep trying harder, somehow this will like even out. Yes. And that. In some way, I had also earned kind of the like the stress of it, like the stress of being successful, especially on the debate team at the time. Uh, And even in kind of the early years of my political life, it felt like it was so stressful and I was doing this hard thing so that at the end of the day or even earlier than the end of the day, I deserve to shut my brain off or like I needed this to get Uh. through it. So it had a lot of layers to it. And what I realized um, at the start of the pandemic was that I, and I had attempted to moderate my drinking for a few years prior to that. I had started tracking my drinking so I'd know how much, like literally on a piece of paper, day by day, I'd say, okay, did you have three drinks? Did you have five drinks? And, And I thought for a long time that if I just know how much I'm drinking or know how it's affecting me that then somehow the knowledge of the impact and tracking it would make me lower my drinking. (laughs) Um, And somehow my brain did not overcome, you know, I didn't smart my way out of the situation. (laughs) I love your face as you're saying this. I wish listeners could see it because you're describing, I think, the challenge for young people, right? Which is that what else would we think other than if I learn about this or I study it or I track it? that that thinking information will turn into change. Yes. And it's a very human, sort of new human being thing to think, right? When you're trying to figure this out from the inside, especially as a person with a smart brain who's like used to thinking things through. Yeah. And it felt like for a long time that it was uh, something I did deserve so that I wanted to like make space to like have the negative side effects, which for me, drinking, I always had the worst hangovers. I mean, I have never not had bad hangovers. There may have been like a point in time where they weren't terrible, like when I was 18. 
but um, never have I not taken from the next day whenever I'm drinking. That is always very clear to me. And I just would kind of eat the difficulty of that. It also was really hard on me. Like I would have these strange illnesses. Like I would feel bad for no reason. And it would be like, why do I feel bad? And it was like, oh, well, you're you're not hydrated and you're not. I was just compromising all of these physical things thinking that that was what I needed to do to feel good at the end of the day, to like de-stress. Like I was using it as a tool that was not a good tool. Um, so I realized, so I did Al-Anon for uh, many years before I actually stopped drinking. And what kind of came to me during that time was that I wasn't going to smart my way out of it. Like I wasn't going to learn enough about it. I'd read enough like what the what the impacts of alcohol are on your system I knew that I knew the health risks but it wasn't until I kind of uncovered the reason behind the perfectionism and the reason behind the striving and the relationship that my family dynamic had to why I chose alcohol <laughs> as mm-hmm. or why I leaned into alcohol as the tool um, it wasn't until I hit that point and was kind of smacked in the face with it when I was alone and not getting like external validation during the pandemic that I said, oh, you need to stop. Like this, you, you actually, you have to stop. But for listeners who might not be familiar with that, Al-Anon is yeah, so it's the program. It's for folks who have someone in their life, and it can be a coworker, it could be a family member, whoever, um, and their drinking has impacts on you. Um, is kind of how I think about Al-Anon, and it's a twelve-step program. We do the steps similar to AA, um, and it's a anonymous group. It's a peer-supported group, and they're all throughout the state. And I started going to Al-Anon. Um, because I was struggling with a, a dynamic in my family, um, but I hadn't quite recognized. Like I went into my first Al-Anon meeting. I still can remember. I went in and I was like, I'm going to get the toolkit for fixing the other person. Like I'm going to know <laughs> how to end alcoholism in my family. A, not recognizing my own bad relationship with alcohol. And then B, thinking that like I'm going to fix it which is classic. Um, and then I got in and I quickly, like, I mean, like the first couple minutes, it was like, you're not going to fix the person. I was like, what? Why did I even come to this? Like, wait, what? And it opened up this network of people who I knew everyone in the room, my first Al-Anon meeting, every single person I knew um, because it's a small town. Um, but that it wasn't this group of people who were... Um, it was a very – there were people really struggling, but there were also people who had overcome, like, the the challenge and still had the people in their life or had chosen to, uh, with love, kind of separate in a, in a healthy way. So I saw that there were paths that I had just not even envisioned. Like, I thought it was either I was going to be happy because the people in my life who struggled with alcohol were going to no longer be alcoholics or I was going to – like there was no or I was just going to continue to live my life the way it was like there was no other path and so it opened me up to realizing that you there are choices you can make to either have that person in your life still and not be uh beholden to their the way their substance abuse can have ramifications on others or you can lovingly say actually i do need to distance myself from you and that's okay that's actually a choice that doesn't need to make me feel guilty or bad or makes me a bad child or a bad um daughter right you know i i love how you shared that you went in with one set of ideas and expectations about what you were going to get and and got something else that was probably much more valuable than what you thought you were going to get yes and as a clinician over the years, what I see when people go into any 12-step space for the first time, you know, I sort of have this library in my head of thousands of stories of people somehow stumbling into any 12-step. And almost all of them go in, they are struggling and looking, obviously, for, for some support or solution. But almost all of them go in with that same idea that there's a checklist yes. or like a set of things you can do to either change others or change the situation. 
and that it's a thing you could like execute. Yes. Yeah. And, right. And what I heard in your story that I think is important for people to hear is that it sure is powerful and it doesn't take long for people going to a 12 step program to start to feel different and talk differently and think differently and shift in all kinds of powerful ways. But it usually comes from the community and from some of the modeling that they see in that community. It changes the way they start to think about their own things. And then obviously working steps and all that has a ton of value. But truly, that thing you said about I could see a lot of paths mm-hmm. that that changed your thinking yeah. versus, oh, this is a, like an assignment I can come in and execute some tasks around. And and I would say the angle that I might be a little unique to my situation is being in public service and being a politician. There are there's I have less privacy than I would expect the average person to think that they have. Like, I just know that when I. I am a visible figure in the community in a way that I've had to deal with just kind of literally growing up in public service, like being 20 and now being 28. That's eight years of very foundational time, a very foundational time in your life that I was doing it kind of in the public eye. Um, So I thought for a long time that I had to keep quiet a lot of my experiences, both from the Al-Anon perspective and the AA perspective, because I thought that I would be judged and that to admit it out loud or to have people know would mean that I wasn't like the picture perfect politician or the it was going to be people would go, oh, no, thanks. I'm not going to vote for her. And what I realized was actually the complete opposite, which is that the more vulnerable I got and there are things I don't talk about, but I have a space where I can talk about those things in a peer supported way. And I can also be very open about my experiences and that was like the light bulb came on when that started to happen because for so long I had really internalized and not talked about it and when something that is foundational to your identity and how you like walk around in the world and you have to keep it secret because you feel like you're going to be judged you're just less authentic in the way that you do things absolutely it really is true 100 percent of the time you know, if you're situated the way I am in the world to see people go through change, that taking that courageous, uncomfortable moment to show up to anything with more vulnerability is the level up. Like that's how the video game works, right? Like the faster we do that part, the better and bigger and, you know, more expansive it gets. So let's go back to the part of your story where you go to Al-Anon, you're aware that, you know, alcohol and addiction has a role in your life and in your family system. You're starting to do this learning. And then how did this come to a head in terms of your own drinking? Yeah, well, I I had found during COVID that when things kind of shut down and we actually were in the state house and then we had to go, we went home. So it was a very stark, like pre-COVID COVID for me because it just like stopped my normal day-to-day work life and I went from being this person who was very in the world talking to like I would say probably hundreds of people in a week in person getting that I'm an extrovert I love people to suddenly my world got really small really fast and I'm on zoom and I was and my my poor partner <laughs> like suddenly my one like eye to eye contact was one person and being that situation I d- started to drink very heavily and there was no like I didn't need to perform in the same way so I felt like oh now I can just like I can drink however I want ah, whenever I okay. want you know and I got very I mean I was making myself sick Um, in a way that I had been but had not been at that extreme level Um, and I finally had the moment where I realized yeah this isn't working for you anymore and you you can't actually drink the way that you want to and it was like once I got the permission like there wasn't anything holding me back from drinking 
I really went hard. And then I realized that that was terrible for me. And it, it made me like physically sick, like sleeping on the carpet, you know, throwing up. I mean, like very physical symptoms. But then also mentally, I was threatening to divorce my husband every day and like, you know, (laughs) getting in these huge arguments over the phone and to the point where I was like, I'm just like not a good person when I'm behaving that way. And the common denominator was that I wasn't addressing my alcohol use. So once I kind of came to that realization, I uh, became a Zoom AA baby (laughs) which is a a very unique group of people because I started going to meetings online. Um, And that was an important thing. I'm really, in a way, glad that I had meetings that were online to start because it kind of let me, like, dip my toes in Um, because I had some nervousness even coming from Al-Anon going into AA because I thought that if I was in Al-Anon that somehow I was going to be a fraud to go to AA or, like, vice versa when in reality the they're like enmeshed in each other. Um, and a lot of cross-pollination, like a lot of people I know attend both those two programs. Yeah. And I had, I had like known that, you know, like, it, like in my mind, but I hadn't, I'd been like, but I'm not one of those people. Like I don't actually have an issue. Um, it's just other people <laughs> in my life, obviously. Um, so that was a big moment. And It was a very, I journaled extensively during that time. Um, I've always kind of kept a diary of sorts, but then I started a journal. I was like, you got to commit like day one. And I wrote about all the things that I didn't like that alcohol was uh, affecting in my life. Um, And I like got quotes. I started putting quotes and like, you know, doing little daily updates about how I was feeling both physically and emotionally. And like day by day, I started to feel better. <laughs> um, and I had a very, I mean, I had the spiritual awakening, which is very interesting because I'm, I still consider myself an atheist. I'm a Unitarian Universalist and I was raised as a Buddhist. So like whatever your conceptions of spirituality are, I've got like a strange quilt of that. Um, but I had the experience of this big pink cloud where I was like, oh my God. The world is beautiful and life is amazing and how did I not come to this sooner and just truly feeling connected to other humans in a way that I had never previously felt. Never. Never. Like I I had had like the connection of like when you're in a big group of people like a concert I guess is like the closest or when you're working on a project with a lot of people and you like win kind of like debate team. It was like when the debate team would win something and we'd all get to that moment of success like that was the closest. I was like we did something together and then I had this moment where I was like oh my gosh. Like, the lines of who I am and the lines of other human beings are way less, like, they're so much more blurred. Like, we are all interconnected. I mean, I truly, it was like, what? Um, And, uh, yeah, so it was pretty trippy. Um, And once I got to that point, it was like, well, cool. Now now I know a little bit more about who I am. And I feel it it relieved a lot of... um, anxiety and stress that I had about like living out in the world um yeah I could talk about sure. I could I could get really hippie and deep with you on that one but let me ask a few questions <laughs> so I hear a through line in your story that I'm going to share with you this mm. is my you know longtime clinician slash applied neuroscience consultant yes. you know supercomputer brain and they're hearing that Young you, as a very young version of yourself, so a young adult in college, something inside of you was paying attention to your alcohol use and started tracking it and writing it down, right? Like your brain, what it knows to do when it's paying attention to something is to track it, right? And you came back to that years later when your drinking reached a point of essentially disruption showing itself to you in a way where you can't not look at it. And your instincts were to start understanding it by writing, tracking, monitoring, right? And I think that instinct, I wanted to call attention to it because I think that's one of your resilient traits, resilience traits, right? That is just a way that you are, that you're wired, or maybe you learned even in your culture or something. But 
it is something that makes a big difference. When people, when people's minds and bodies identify something feels wrong or out of balance, you know, we tend to fall into two camps and these camps do not fare the same way, mm. right? The, the camp of complete disconnection and avoidance where I am not even in conversation about it is that's where longer struggle, right? Yeah. Because, and that is very, I mean, it's an, it's an unconscious thing. The brain picks that sometimes, mm. um, the body picks that sometimes. But what I heard in, is that you and I are actually built quite alike, which is that your mind, even if it's just to you in secret, was always in conversation about your drinking, mm-hmm. about your family. Mm-hmm. It, it was never not a thing you were paying attention to and that your instincts to document, to write, and to use that as a way to process, but also to mm-hmm. learn really seemed to make a difference. Do I have that right? You, wow. Okay. This is good. Because <laughs> it fits. So what you've described is one of the, I'd say a, it's a good trait of mine, but also I find that it can be a problem, which is I'm very evidence based. So I need to prove before I make a decision. Ah. Like I need a lot of things to feel confident in a decision. Um, and I was biased in my, tr- like I felt that I was biased in my, in my drinking. Like I enjoyed the feeling of drinking and it overweighed any of the evidence that was like, oh, maybe this isn't worth the, the pain and the difficulty. Um, and maybe it's also affecting other things. Um, so I needed that evidence, and I th- I think that's really good. I like policymakers who are very evidence-driven, um, but you're right. In my personal life, it can be a strength as well, as I do think it is. Yeah, it's not the only tool you need, but I just wanted to <laughs> name it for folks listening because when people are like, well, you know, Becca White's a whole senator, right? The truth is, is that the traits of resilience have nothing to do with your education yes. at all. Yes. And they have nothing to do, you know, you might have been a, you know, smarty smarty who knew how to, you know, process this in a specific way. But the instinct to get into tracking and process so that you have something to even reflect on and yes. a way to do that, I think, stands out to me. And the other thing that stands out to me is that you also recognize that that there are limitations or mm. struggles with that. That part of, I, you haven't said this word, but I'll say it for you, was letting go of control or sort of getting comfortable with sloppy, unknown, unpredictable, uncertain. Yes. That is really hard for people yes. who are overachievers who, who have these giant brains and are really effective in, you know, your work or your school like that. So say more about how has this been with that part, the parts that are like messy, spiritual, unclear. Well, it's interesting because I've had like I think being in a political space, there people expect you to have a fully formed opinion on all topics. It's very strange. So people will talk to me and say, "How do you feel about XYZ?" And they expect me to have thought about it, have a policy position, and then be advocating for that policy position. And what's tough about anytime you're internally changing and growing, <laughs> as I think we all are prone to do, is you might not have a fully formed opinion. So for a long time, I was just kind of asserting my feelings as like, this is correct because I feel it at this moment, and then was advocating for things. When now I'm so much more comfortable with being like, yeah, I don't really know how I feel about that right now. Or I need to ask more questions or I need to, I don't know if I ever will have an opinion on that. That is a a wild thing for a politician to say. People do not want politicians who don't have like a... Please say it. No, I am (laughs) thrilled by this because the truth of the matter is the way that human, human development works, the way that communication works, and certainly the way policy should work, which is the way humans work, is that, uh, that impression that we have to know is actually a young yeah. idea, right? Like that's a young person's game. Yeah. Um, and the it older, right? The, yeah. y- the older that we get, the more we realize we don't know or that things change or that there's a million nuances. Oh, and, and you could be wrong. And in fact, you could not only be n- like not have your, you can have an opinion, but your opinion can also be wrong. And if it's wrong, it doesn't mean you should double down on it. It means you should change or think about it or be comfortable with someone coming at you with feedback and criticism. And that's, that is probably the most challenging part about being in the public eye is 
when you're processing something internally and you don't necessarily have like a firm boundary on something or a firm belief on something, people will try to influence you. And that influence, um, you just have to like be very, you have to be very clear about what the intent of the other person is. And um, yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts about how people relate to folks who are meant to represent them. Um, but what I've kind of found through my process with recovery is that anytime that I can break it down to you're another human being, I'm a human being, like what are the, th what, what about this is impacting you? Like when I actually sit down with someone and if they have a strong opinion about a bill, it's like, well, is that strong opinion informed by something that I can understand or relate to? And if that's the case, it's like, well, then I want to, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm using whatever your experiences are to make a better piece of legislation. So on that topic of how people relate to you as a leader and a policymaker here in Vermont, uh, how did you sort, am I going to tell people about my drinking situation? And how did that go as you navigated that? Well, I, it's interesting. I felt like I had to hit like a milestone before I could like unveil like that I was actually not drinking anymore and that I had done it. Like I felt for a long time that I wasn't, I hadn't hit like a, a noteworthy thing. And which is very counterintuitive to like the recovery community, which is like, if you have 24 hours, good job. Like let's celebrate that. But I didn't necessarily feel comfortable announcing it until I hit, um, I think it was like nine months, interestingly enough, was around the time that I kind of announced that I had, um, drinking had no longer been a part of my life for that period of time. And I had been hesitant to do it because I was nervous about how people would react. Um, and then what ended up happening was I was just flooded with just these, like, I mean, so many people in my life, both who I didn't know and then people who I'd known my whole life who I'd never had those conversations with. It just, like, opened up this gate of people. And it was probably the most powerful thing I've ever had happen to me through social media <laughs> because that was kind of how I unveiled it. Um, but what ended up happening is I ended up, you know, lots of positive feedback on social media. That was great. But then the trickle effect has been just people coming up to me and being like, I really thank you. Like I, I too have been struggling with that. Or, you know, I've, I, people who shocked me were like, yeah, I haven't had, I haven't been drinking for 15 years. It's like, wait, I always thought that you, were, you know, it just opened up this, oh, you've struggled with that too, or you're in a different place than I am with it, but you, I'm not alone in the experience. And that was so important for me in my recovery because it gave me the strength to say like, this is a life choice and not just like a, a phase. Like this is something that I can see being a part of my life. for That you could sustain yeah. this because what I hear in that, a bunch of things, but what I hear in that for you is that when you did the brave thing, the social media, hey, everybody, guess what? I won't be drinking. I'm, you know, had a wobbly time yes. with that thing, <laughs> <Yes>. that <laughs> little wobbly over here, right? <laughs> when you do that as a person, that's vulnerable for anyone yeah. in the social media way of communicating, you know, announcing to the public, so to speak. But as a public official, I know that, first of all, you have a, an audience that yeah. is larger and that has an opinion about you that's totally. really different. And I can't imagine what that kind of courage felt like in the moment, but I've had to do some things like that in my own life uh, where it, it feels like there is no other choice, so I just become brave to do it. And I heard mm -hmm. you say that, and then I thought, I got chills when you said you were just overwhelmed with oh, the support. totally overwhelmed. And partially because I thought, boy, that is what you needed, right? Like if it hadn't been that oh, way, right? I think back, yeah, if it, I really hope that if I had somehow gotten like a bunch of like, that's so bad, like how dare you be in politics and like be struggling with these situations, I, I think I would have, it would have been really hard. And I like to think that if hypothetically that had been the case, I would have had a strong enough foundation. And that's probably one of the reasons why I think if you are, a person in recovery and you're not quite ready to tell folks that's actually okay like that's totally where you are like if you're not quite ready for the feedback um, then you don't need to tell people and I did actually have one of the surprising things was I had folks who 
reached out to me who are very close to me who were surprised, um, who were like, if you are in that situation, it, it gave people who I think were struggling with either alcohol use or other kinds of problems, they realized, oh no, like I hadn't realized she had had an issue. And if she had had an issue, how does that reflect on me? Sure. Sure. And so I did have friends who were like, oh, you're not, you weren't that bad. Like, no, 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 you were never that bad. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, like maybe that's true, but also it was that bad for me and that's okay for it to have been bad for me and not for you to have known that it was that serious. So I, that was, that was one of the more interesting things. It was less people saying like, oh, I'm, I'm upset that you have a problem with alcohol and more like, do you? And it's like, yeah, actually, I really did. You know, as a clinician, I can say that it's very, very common for people to start to disclose anything <laughs> vulnerable to yeah. community members and friends and yeah. to get some sort of defensive feedback loop. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I guess the, the piece of your story that is so hopeful to me, Becca, is that you did get what you needed, mm -hmm. and that means your life gets to be an integrated life. You yes. get to be a young, powerful leader here in the state doing work that you are great at, that we need you doing, and you get all your choices, mm -hmm. and you get to have your truth known and get the support. But I also want you to know, as someone who follows you on social media and learned about this yeah. <laughs> from social media, right? I was doing my own thing in the, in the pandemic. Uh, what I remember thinking was, what an opportunity, right? First, I was like, I hope she's okay. Mm. I hope she has what she needs. And then I thought, what an opportunity for this state mm. to have more wholehearted conversations about mental health, addiction, policy yes. practice and how all yes. this weaves together because as a small state we have something here in Vermont that other states really don't have yeah. to work with in their mental health and addiction crises which is that we have a way of being in community and relationship and moving real individual human experience into into policy oh, like really totally. at, in a way that doesn't happen in places with millions of people and so I think my my sort of final question to you about this piece is how has it informed your leadership work? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, I would say policy wise, it opened me up to just a completely different framing of how we do um, substance abuse related policy. And it, even though I haven't struggled with um, uh, substance abuse in the form of um, like uh, drugs like heroin or um, prescription. I now have a sense of that community. I've been a part, I've gone to NA meetings with friends, you know, so I've, I've seen that side of it and it's like, oh, once you, so that is very helpful for me is to have that experience because I think when we talk about people who are in recovery or who are actively in substance abuse um, disorder, they are other. And so it's really helpful for me to be in the room because it makes people talk differently about people who are in that situation. And I had been, I even remember we were in like transportation committee and we were talking about DUIs and people who were going to have a program available to them if they committed to abstaining from drinking for their whole life. Like you basically had to sign this pledge of, of abstinence from drinking. Oh, wow. And I, yeah, and I was like, that seems like, you know, just putting it out there, that seems like a bad idea. Like that kind of blood oath where then if someone tattles on you to the DMV that you are drinking. Right. It's yeah. also just not very deliverable. It, it's like just a bad it, idea, it, right? Yes. And it was like people were like, oh, this makes sense. And it's like actually like just, you know, as a person who struggled with this, you know, haven't had that driving situation. But, you know, let's maybe reframe how we're both talking about the people who do get into situations where they're they have a DUI as people and then also let's think about what the outcome is that we want and if it's them not drinking and driving maybe we need to talk about other things before we get to them getting behind the wheel um, and that was a very important thing that I had to say out loud and I don't think the conversation would have been as good if there wasn't someone in the room being like just like as a person who's experienced this let's not throw stones just yet. 
Well, you and yeah. I both know that's always true about policy, <laughs> that if there are people with lived experience in those conversations, the policy comes out different. And I'm just yes. always going to bang that drum. But, you know, I just want to, first of all, thank you for Aww. sharing the story. Hey. And... And also say that it's really hopeful for me as someone who's been doing a lot of systems level work. Um, you know, I'm a Vermonter. I grew up here and I worked for 15 years in Seattle. I've also worked in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. And I have been working really, really hard for a long time at how could we heal, change, improve these systems of care? How could we help more people in better ways faster? And what I believe is really true is that the biggest barrier that we have to doing this is not the science, it's not the mm. tools, it is not uh, the the ability to heal or help others. It is the leadership policy and sort of decisional and financial mm. systems issues that are both disconnected from what would be most helpful, not often informed by people with lived experience, yes. and also just frankly very like glacial and entrenched and complicated. Totally. And so Folks like you who can stand and say out loud, I'm a leader, I'm a policymaker, I'm also a person, I also come from a family that struggled with addiction and alcohol, and I also have gone through this myself, are both showing out to us and telling, but also really meaningfully shifting conversations in a state where that makes a difference. It really makes a difference. Yes, and I would just say, you know, kind of as a, as a final thought is, I was also surprised at disclosing my story, how many people counted themselves out of being public policymakers or being involved in, in politics because of their experience with substance. And I'm like, no, you, you actually have to, be, we need you. Like, not only is it not a disqualifier, your experience is so important that I'm going to recruit you to run for office. Um, so right. it's a bonus, <laughs> right? It's like we're doing it. I think that too. And you know, uh, Vermont and the nation are struggling and will continue to struggle with addiction, with the opiate epidemic and with all these related issues as well as the mental health crisis. So thank you for being someone who is willing to show, tell, and share your own resilience story and then bring that and integrate it into your work because we desperately need it. Oh, now you're just making my day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're making mine. Thank you so much. Folks, again, here with uh, State Senator Becca White. I appreciate so much your time, your story, and your leadership. Thank you. Over the 22 years of my clinical mental health career and applied neuroscience training, one powerful thing I've learned about addiction is that the world is divided in half between people whose brains and bodies have struggled with it or who have lived up close in the family or relational orbit of someone they care about who has struggled and those who quite literally cannot understand it. I have talked with many, many family members, friends, colleagues, neighbors, parents, healthcare providers, and policymakers who are understandably hurt, afraid, confused, angry, or even detached from the substance use storm happening inside their own loved one because their own brains and bodies simply do not respond the same way or crave the same things. As someone who understands the hard science that now shows us transformative data and detail about what drinking or substance use is doing inside of us, I am certain of one truth about it that I desperately wish more people understood. No one would ever choose this. No one. Literally, not any single person I have ever met in my decades of emergency and acute mental health practice or in my 46 years as a person living in a world full of substance use disorder, one including both sides of my own family tree that has touched and devastated me and my family personally many times over, would ever, ever choose addiction, dependency, or uncontrollable substance use patterns that their system believed had an off-ramp. The notion that people have choice and agency in their relationships with alcohol or drugs is not entirely false. 
because every single sober person ever has demonstrated the potential for every currently struggling person's future sobriety or changed pattern. People can and do pull themselves out of it like Becca did during COVID all the time. But her story also reveals the science. Becca's earlier thinking and denial patterns about her drinking and its impact on her and those around her were not a choice. They were narratives and ideas that we now understand as cognitive neurobehavioral patterns that are coded to serve a survival purpose, not for honesty or accuracy or to do what others think that she should have done or wanted her to do. Denial patterns exist because our bodies and brains are built to keep us upright and moving forward, which is impossible if we are tangled up in overwhelmed or uncomfortable bodies, minds, and hearts. Denial is the servant of the body's will to not suffer, and it believes it needs the alcohol to survive. Becca's young adult period of not really understanding the full cost of her alcohol use was aided by denial that was literally the best solution a college student brain and body that hummed with stress and perfectionism and a big, powerful, and busy mind could identify to quiet all of that. If people had access to the best information, tools, resources, and support to better tend the hum or the unprocessed grief or the anxiety or the chronic pain, etc. in modern life, then substance use patterns would plummet and the data bears this out. People with certain neurodiversity or a trauma history or certain medical conditions, as well as those who live with chronic stress, lack of safety, or who lack support and connection in the community are at extremely elevated risk of developing a problem with alcohol or drugs because their brains and bodies are quite literally more sensitive as well as more desperately in need of a state change. Alcohol is a cheap, available, socially validated and celebrated state change that almost all of us understand as a way to quiet a hum. But for many people, the state change is so powerful and necessary that the brain reconfigures itself to think and problem solve and behave and act on the mission of keeping the state change coming even when it's wreaking havoc on relationships and lives, even when it's hurting people or risking things that matter. That is how powerful our system's insistence on short-term hacking our survival is. It solves our modern world problems with features designed for prehistoric existence. Even the smart, insightful, focused, resourceful, and honest Becca Whites of the world can become entangled in substance abuse. I'm someone who has had my own heart devastated by alcoholism and substance use in my personal life, while also working for decades in foster care, emergency rooms, crisis programs, and schools through the emergence of opiates, the meth epidemic, the explosion of pill access and designer club drugs with young people, and the truly stunning scope of the current alcohol, opiate, and fentanyl crises in the United States. I once talked with an ER patient, a 27-year-old woman with an infected abscess on her arm that surgeons believed required urgent surgery to stave off losing the arm entirely. I had been asked to come into her room and convince her to stay, to reassure her and to ask her to have the surgery, and to tell her that they would medicate her adequately so she would not detox and experience the discomfort of the opiate need in her system. She was lucid. She was communicating rationally to me, but she looked me right in the eye and she said, but what if it's not enough? What if I have the surgery, but they don't give me enough? What she meant was, I am more afraid of what I know it will feel like inside of me than I am of living without this arm. And 30 minutes later, even though I talked with her, she chose to discharge AMA against medical advice and I didn't see her back later or the next day. Becca White sharing with the world her state change story around alcoholism is a revolution that we need more of. We need leaders who can connect to mental health and substance use issues and turn that experience and knowledge into policy, and who can and will share their own stories, because never in my lifetime has there been more need. Those of us who hold the human suffering and respond to the deaths, to the body count, to the shattered lives, are desperately shouting to the world. This is a symptom of a society that cannot tend its people, 
not of people who are being reckless or selfish or unwise. Inside of a person with substance use struggle, the substance literally seems more important than our limbs. And it's really important that we all remember that as we move through this moment. Thanks for listening. The Stay Change Podcast is a production of Stay Change Media and recorded at Dialed Studio in Burlington, Vermont, on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain. Our producer and sound engineer is Will Davis. Our story editor is Laura Rose Shepard. And I'm executive producer and host, Shauna Hill. Our show's theme music is by Phantoms, with additional show music by Chelsea McGaw, Falls, Ghost Beats, and Solitude. Special thanks to our guests for their courageous vulnerability. And to John Toda, Wesley Davis, and the incredible team over at Syntax in Motion for helping us bring this podcast to life. The State Change Pod would not be possible without our amazing village. And special thanks go to Coley Hapeman, Jens Hybertson, Hannah Rosen, Ebba Lukender, Kai Gurley, and our friends at Middlebury College's Innovation Hub. If you or someone you know is struggling right now, you make sense, you matter, and you are not alone. Immediate support for mental health emergencies is available by dialing 988 from anywhere in the United States or contacting your local crisis support service or healthcare provider. To learn more about State Change Media and our mission to turn mental health into public health for all, or to bring more brain-based resilience to your workforce, organization, or community, check us out at statechangemedia.com or on our socials at state underscore change underscore media. We would love to hear from you.